Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Romans chapter, uh, chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. And I uh, hope everyone has had a uh, blessed week, uh, blessed weekend as well. Um, it's always interesting whenever you kind of say that, you come up and you say, you know, hey, I hope everyone's had a great day, great weekend, great week. Um, but the reality is, is it's not always just great, is it? <laughs> it's, it's not always um, positive. It's not always exactly what you expect it to be or what you want it to be um, because that's life, right? Like the, the, there's, there's constantly going to be um, a roller coaster. Uh, I mean, we, we started meeting publicly as a church in this theater about eight months ago now. Um, and throughout that eight months, there's been definitely times where we can look back and say, man, these have been milestones. These have been God moments. These have been, been times in which we've seen God come in and orchestrate things that only God can orchestrate. And then there's weeks, there's months where we come in and, and we say, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? Um, how's this thing going to work? How's this thing going to ultimately flesh itself out? And so there's, there's, there's vulnerabilities that we have at times where we think um, that we can ultimately do things in our own strength and our own ability in order to make things good, in order to make things great, in order to make things appear to be what we think will be blessed. But ultimately, that's not up to us. Ultimately, that's not up to our own abilities. It's not up to our own uh, intellectual ascent. It's not up to our own works and our own deeds. Um, God is doing what God is going to do. And what we're going to be looking at today uh, is specifically a passage in Romans 8 where God's working out all things for the good of those who, who love him or are called according to his purpose. And this is flowing out of last week. This is flowing out of Easter. Everything that God accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When we, when we think about Easter, we think about it being a milestone kind of within the year. We think about it being kind of a, a getting to the top of the mountain. Um, and, and one of the reasons why we observe Lent before the 40 days leading up to Easter is because it kind of creates this angst. It creates this expectancy of, yes, there's a lot of things that we sacrifice. There's a lot of lesser things that we give up in order to experience the greater things of the gospel. So we're, we're moving towards that. We're, we're coming to the place where we're finally going to see God show up and say, I'm here for you, I'm providing for you, I've forgiven you, I'm lavishing grace, I'm lavishing love, I'm lavishing all these things upon you. And so we lead up to that and we get to Easter and we kind of celebrate it and it's this milestone, God, you are good, you are gracious, you are loving. Look what you did for us 2,000 years ago. Look what you did in the life of Jesus. Look what you did in the death of Jesus. Look what you did in the resurrection of Jesus. And we celebrate that and we get excited about that and, and we worship him in that. But then there's always the next Sunday. There's always the next Sunday where we feel like We've hit the mountaintop. We've hit the kind of um, exclamation point of the ministry, the gospel. We hit the exclamation point of what church is meant to be, is proclaiming the truth of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. So then what? 
we kind of get to the top, and, and in some ways, because we've had the leading up expectancy of it, we kind of experience, at least for the most part, that camp high, that camp experience that you have if you've ever been to a Christian camp when you were younger. And the reason why usually camps have this certain high is because there's this elevated expectancy. There's this elevated awareness of us focusing on the word, us diving into prayer, us surrounding ourselves with other believers in order to come in and literally for 16, 17 hours a day, all we're doing is surrounding ourselves with the gospel, surrounding ourselves with community, surrounding ourselves with the message And so no wonder camp is going to be this high because we're just saturated with the gospel. We're saturated with it. And and a lot of times that's what Easter is, is everybody's heightened awareness of what God is ultimately doing and accomplishing. But then there's the next Sunday where we feel like we begin this kind of descent off of the top of the mountain. And what I want to share with you guys today is, is although Easter is quote-unquote, a milestone or a, a climax. All it really is is just a doorway into what we actually get to experience on a daily basis. It's just a mere small doorway in which God provides a truth about what He is doing that leads into implications that affect us every single day leading up to easter and talking about easter and celebrating easter and then to move on to okay now let's just do church throughout the rest of the year let's just figure out some series let's just figure out some ministry opportunities that we can do like if we leave easter in the past if we leave the message of the gospel as a certain day of the year and move on from it And don't go back to it. Don't constantly reference it. Don't be anchored to it. If we leave it, we miss out on the the entire purpose of what we're doing here. What we're doing here today, what we're doing here tomorrow, what we're doing here as a church on a weekly and daily and hourly basis. If we leave the gospel where it's at, if we move on and say we've celebrated it and we've shared it, but it doesn't have implications for my life daily, then we never really understood it, nor did we walk through the door. Because what we're going to be talking about today and what we're focusing literally our next 17 weeks on is the implications that this message has for each one of us daily. Think about it this way. Think about the Easter message Think about it in terms of a wedding in which if we were to tell you, if we were to have two people who were coming together to get married and we're literally, I mean, how many of you planned your wedding in advance, right? Like, especially for the ladies, it was probably six, nine months worth of just all out thinking about it, planning it, expectancy growing, angst growing. Like you're leading up to that big day and you're getting really excited about it. And then what happens if on that day two people come together, get married, but no one's ever told them the benefits of what it means to be married. But yet after they get married, they then go on to live their separate lives and don't actually enter into walking through the covenant of marriage. 
why would you ever get married? And that's what we're talking about is, is we can't leave the idea of the gospel message that's preaching and proclaiming to us the truth of what God is doing in our lives every single day. We can't leave that as just a ceremony that God orchestrated at one moment in our life. And then now move into, okay, now let me try to figure out how this thing works. No, it's us coming back to the gospel every single day. It's coming back to this covenant relationship that God has ordained, that God has orchestrated, bringing us into a relationship with him. Again, that has huge implications for us every single day. That's why we're literally, like after we've got this message today, we've got one message next week that Josh is going to be preaching. And then the following week, May 7th, we're going to be leading into John chapter 15. And we're going to be spending 15 weeks in one chapter of the Bible, John 15, covering one verse, John 15, 1 through 17, covering one to two verses each week for 15 weeks because we want you to see And not just see, but treasure. And not just treasure, but apply to your life the implications of what it means to now abide in Christ. In those 17 verses, John writes the word abide 11 times. There's a point that he's trying to make there. That the gospel is not just news for us to secure our eternity, but it's news for us to secure a relationship that we have with God every single day. Every single day. So it's important for us. And the reason why it's so important is because, as I said earlier, life's not always great. In the moments that it's great, it's easy to honor and worship and praise. But the reality is, is it's not always like that. <laughs> it's not. There, it, it's the best way to say it, it's a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster in a lot of ways you don't feel strapped in. And so the only anchor that we have, the only source that we have to be able to get through And to not only just get through, but to get through with a joy that's unwavering is to be anchored and to be connected to Christ and to be abiding in a relationship with him. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And and what I want to mention before we jump into Romans chapter 8 here is one of the last things Jesus said on the cross was in John 19.30, he says, It is finished which meant that everything needed for this relationship between us and Jesus, everything needed for that relationship to work and function, for that abiding to happen, Jesus accomplished. So when we jump into the next 17 weeks, that's going to be a lot of walking through. That's going to be a lot of discipline on our part. That's going to be a lot of action on our part. That's going to be a lot of responsibility on our part. Do not hear me say that your abiding relationship with Christ is dependent upon your responsibility. 
is first and foremost dependent upon what Christ has done, not what you do. But because of what he's done leads to what we can do. Does that make sense? All right, good. I think I just went out, but that's all right. They'll figure it out. Oh, wait, there I am. I'm back. Romans 8. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 28 is where we're going to begin here in the, in the Scripture. Romans 8, 28. And we're going to look at just a couple of verses here. And uh, before we jump into this, I want to pray one more time um, just for the Spirit to lead and guide us as we jump into the Word. Father, we thank you for your life. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. God, we thank you for everything that you've accomplished in order to bring us into a relationship with you. And God, we know that this relationship is that, a relationship. God, in which there is mutual submissiveness, there is mutual understanding, there is mutual growth, there is, there is both you working and us responding. And God, that provides for us a sense of peace, a sense of rest, a sense of hope, a sense of worship and honor of what you're doing and accomplishing in us as you are conforming us more and more to your son's image. And so God, as we look through this passage, Romans 8, 28 through 30, God, I already know um, because I'm the one that prepared this message. I know that there are certain words in this passage that can be debated over. There are certain words in here that can be um, scary in some ways for us to discuss and talk about. But God, let us ultimately see what it is that you are accomplishing and let us see the goodness that you are producing based on your pursuit of us. And so God, let us see how you are a loving and gracious and sovereign God. And that is working out all things for the good of us, including those things that are good and bad. God, we love you. And again, we need your Holy Spirit in this time now to guide us in the understanding of your truth. We need your Holy Spirit to teach and mold us. We need your Holy Spirit to let us see the word, let us treasure the word, and let us be transformed by the word. And so God, let him do his work in our hearts and in our minds in this place, and let us be open for him to do that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, Romans 8, picking up in verse 28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, and what he means by for those who love God, he's simply saying that's for those who belong to Christ, who have believed he rose from the dead and have received forgiveness through faith in Christ. So for those who belong to Christ, for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is a very, very popular verse that's thrown around all the time. Um, hey, man, God's working out all things for your good. Like, like this is oftentimes a verse that we use to kind of share with somebody whenever things are going wrong, right? Whenever things are going bad, whenever things are going awry, we're always, hey, man, God's working out all things. He's using all things for your good. And so we're very familiar with this verse, but at the same time, Sometimes this verse can be misconstrued, misunderstood in a lot of ways that the verse Philippians 4.13 can be misconstrued and, and misunderstood. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A lot of times we use this verse the same way we use that one, that I can do anything, God's using it for good. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can make a basketball shot 
because Christ is strengthening me. I can make a touchdown because Christ is strengthening me. I, I can be the best teacher because Christ is strengthening me. I can be a preacher because Christ is strengthening me. I, I can do good things because Christ is strengthening me. A lot of times that's what we think this is what's going on, but this verse does not mean that all things are going to be good. That's not what Paul said. He said all things work together for good, not all things are good. This verse is not about changing your circumstances so that everything's good, but rather God's using your circumstances for your good. He's using your circumstances for your sanctification, for your maturity, for your joy, for your satisfaction in Him and Him alone. This is not because I love God I'll have more than enough money to buy all my heart desires. This is not because I love God, I will have more, um, I will never get sick or my family will never get sick. This is not because I love God, I will never experience pain or suffering or loss or stress or anxiety or difficulties in life. That's not what he's saying there. He's not saying because I love God and I'm in a re relationship with God that everything is going to go smoothly in life. Rather, as I mentioned in Philippians 4.13, he is saying I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But what can I do through Christ? What's the context of Philippians 4.13? Backing it up a couple of verses, he says, and this will be, unless it's out, this will be up on the screen. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I am seeking or not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need I can do all things through him who strengthens me so for those who love God, what he's saying is he's working out all things, whatever your circumstance, both good and bad, he's working it out for your good so that through Christ you're strengthened to press on. Back to Romans 8, 28, we'll, we'll see the way in which God's working out all things, his process for your good. And this is what he says, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are a lot of big churchy terms in here um, that can either be a comfort for some or for others might terrify you. Um, kind of depending on your background of, of church, your background of, of Christianity, your background of debates, um, as far as kind of what grids, you know, theological grids that you use to process truths of Scripture. Um, some of these terms might be welcoming, championing terms that I, I love these terms. And for others, we're like, can we please just not talk about these terms? Can we, can we please not go to foreknowledge? Can you please not go to predestination? And so what I want to do is, is I do want to talk about these terms, but instead of, of going the route of dealing with will around these terms, because usually that's where people focus, 
is what's the will aspect? Is this our free will choosing or is this God's will of choosing? I don't want to go through that route, but what I do want to focus on in these terms is what is God doing? What's God doing? Not what, what are we doing? Because that's really where the debate's at. And where we can agree to disagree in that debate is whether I chose God or whether God chose me, God gets glory, right? Like whether I get to heaven and as I'm walking through the door, even if I'm looking at the door and it says, I chose God, and I get through the door and on the other side, the door says, God chose me, regardless, we still got to heaven and God gets the glory, right? Because when we see God in his glory, we're going to not look at us anymore to determine how we even got there. We're going to see the fact that God worked out everything in order to bring us in. And that's where we can rest. That's where we can agree. That's where we can look at these scriptures, look at these words, these verses, and say, God, you're good. God, you are awesome. And that we can praise. That we can understand. So let me break these terms down for you real quick. And, and this is just barely scratching the surface, what the Bible says. So when the Bible says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It, pre it presents two terms that, been, that have been greatly debated for centuries. centuries. The argument's always based around the will. When scripture speaks of foreknowledge, the root there is to know to know. Now, this idea of knowing beforehand does not mean that God in his eternity past looked down the corridor of eternity future and learned who were going to choose him. And because he learned about who were going to choose him, he then wrote their name down in the book of life. That's not what foreknowledge is preaching because that, what, what that explains is God is a secondary sovereign behind us. That God is only choosing and acting and reacting based on what we do, not what he's doing. So when we talk about foreknowledge, this is not a God having a knowledge beforehand, looking down corridor of history and learning what happens and then reacting to what happens. That's not what foreknowledge is referring to here. That idea is the heresy called open theism, that God is still having the ability to learn and react. So the term to know carries much more weight than that. There's knowing by which you have facts about a person or a situation, and then there's knowing by which an intimacy is established. The word to know here is the same word that's used in Genesis when, when, when it says Adam knew Eve and they conceived and bore a son named Seth. Do you think Adam knowing facts about Eve is what produced a child? No. So there's a way in which we can know facts about someone, and there's a way in which we can know someone intimately that produces a child. There's a certain type of unity and intimacy there that has to happen, right? So this idea of God knowing us is not just knowing facts about us, but it's bringing us into oneness and union with him that produces things out of us, that produces fruit so following our text, God predestined, 
and, and to do some work on, on predestined is just what it says it is. He predestined. He decided before time that this was what he was going to do. So he predestined, he decided beforehand that he was going to know you in an intimate way. He decided before we were born, before he formed us in our mother's womb, as Paul says, to set me apart and consecrate me. To set me apart for the work in which he has for me. So he decided beforehand, like this should give us some rest here. This should be a warm blanket term for us that God, before I was even born, decided to love me in an intimate way that's transforming me to be like his son Jesus and that is going to provide rest for me, that's going to provide peace for me, that's going to work out all things in my life, in my situation. Including not only just everything that happens after my salvation, but everything that was before my salvation is working out the good of me. Think about it with Paul. Paul himself says that God set me apart before I was in my mother's, my mother's womb to be a messenger of his. And who was Paul before he was Paul? He was Saul. He was the leading persecutor of the church. He was literally dragging men, women, and children out of their homes and then setting up opportunities for people to stone them because of the message of Jesus that Paul would ultimately be a champion for. So God set Paul apart before his mother's womb, but yet Paul grows up to be a leading persecutor of the church so where's God in that, right? If God set him apart before his mother's womb, then what, then what took so long? I can't answer that. All I can know is that there was a zeal about Paul that was anti-gospel, and that same zeal God used and transformed to be a zeal not against him but for him. God's working out all things for our good. Let's keep going. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Because Jesus has risen, we are now called. When I was in seventh grade, there was a fifth grader, and I've shared this a couple of times, so I'll go through it pretty quick. Um, but when I was in seventh grade, there was a fifth grader who, who moved in next door, not by himself, he had a family, um, but moved in next door, and, uh, and this was the first person who ever shared the gospel with me. We, we, we called him Big Red, um, even though he's a fifth grader. Um, we called him Big Red, and uh, his name's Clint Lamberth. He's now in ministry down in Florida. Um, but first person ever. I wasn't raised in a church. We didn't go to church as a family. And so we're outside one day. We're, we're playing. We're doing what seventh and fifth graders do. And, and, and it's just out. Well, they don't do that nowadays. They do it on iPads. But we were outside, and we were playing. And uh, we were looking at this tree, this bush, and, and this fifth grader goes, can you, uh, can you create that bush? No, I can't create the bush. He was like, well, I know who can. And he goes on and shares with me the, the, the story of Jesus, the fact that Jesus created all things, but that bush is actually broken. It's not what it should look like. And so he then goes on, to, and this is a fifth grader, a 10-year-old sharing this message with me. So that's the first time that I heard the gospel. That's the first time I heard the message. That's the first time I can now look back and say, God began calling me. 
God began drawing me. God began wooing me in. Now, I didn't accept the gospel when he shared it with me at that moment, but that's the first story that I have of where the gospel was shared with me. Fast forward a couple of months later, the... um, the fifth grader invites me to his youth group, invites me to his church. I come. They're doing like a revival throughout the week. And, and as I show up, this is like a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Uh, I remember there being a speaker. I remember there being a lot of students there. And I remember the speaker giving a message, sharing the gospel. And I remember in that moment, okay, now I, I'm hearing the same thing that the fifth grader shared with me. But now all of a sudden, I've got this, this angst in my soul. I, I, I've got this heart that's, that's sort of like something's going on. There's this feeling that I've, that I've never had before. What's going on here? And at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the message, the, the preacher asks, if anybody wants to come down front and, and accept this, then, then come down front and accept this. And so I remember thinking, well, I, I, there's something going on, so I should probably respond. And so I got up and, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, like go down the aisle and, and go down front. And, and the fifth grader's uncle then takes me back into this room and begins sharing with me the gospel again. And like looking back on it now, like apparently that family was out for me. <laughs> like, um, and so, so he, he begins sharing the gospel with me. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, why, why, would, I not, why would I not want this? Why, why would I not accept this? Why would I not receive this? Like this, if this is what God has done, then this is amazing news. This is good news. And so I remember at that point accepting the gospel. Two years go by, they moved away because they moved away. That lost my access to church because, again, my family didn't go. Two years go by, and now I'm a freshman in high school, and we're driving down the road. And my dad says, there's a church. We need to start going to this church because this world's going to hell in a handbasket because 9-11 happened. And so this is, and that's just, if you've ever met my dad, that's about all you're going to get. So anyways, he says, we're going to go to start going to this church. We start going to that church, and the youth pastor, Ashley Mofield, he, he comes up to me on a Sunday and says, hey, how much do you know about Jesus? And I said, Here's kind of the snapshot of what I know about Jesus. He, he lived perfect. He died for my sins. He rose, and, and I'm, I, I'm supposed to accept that. And so he says, okay, we got some more work to do with that. We, we've got, he's like, that's great. He's like, but there's implications to that. And so from that point on, for the next four years, I met with him on Mondays at 3 o'clock. And he discipled me into understanding what the gospel truly is. And so I look back on fifth grader moving there, God orchestrating that, to then hearing the message again at a revival, to then meeting a youth pastor who's willing to take time and share with me the gospel. And I look back at all those moments, and that's God calling me. That's God drawing me in. That's God wooing me into his family. The beauty is, is it doesn't work that way with everybody. For those of you who belong to Christ in this room, you have a story of how God called you, how he drew you in. He goes on to say, for those whom he called, he also justified. Now, when it comes to justification, we we should all get this because it's a legal term. It's a legal term that deals with law and justice. And let's be honest, we love the law. We love the law. Case in point. How many CSIs are there on TV? How many law and orders are there? I know my wife could tell you. She TiVo's all of them, or whatever it's called now, DVR. But, like, I mean, you got CSI Miami, CSI New York, CSI Las Vegas, CSI. 
Yeah. So there's a lot of them out there. The different law and order, SVU, you got movies. I mean, I can say this one line and you know what I'm talking about. You can't handle the truth. I don't know, maybe that is actually before some of us in here. Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson, all right? But the reality is there's so many movies and television shows where you get good detective work, you get lawyers, you get prosecution involved, you get the strong arm of justice, and we get sucked into it because we love it. We love it. So we should all understand this idea of justification, and here's what it means. It means to be pardoned. To be pardoned. It does not mean you're innocent. That's what a lot of people think when it comes to justification is, I'm now innocent. I'm, I'm now found not guilty because I'm innocent. But that's not what it is. To be justified by God. So we're called. He's drawing us in. He's, he's really drawing us into the courtroom. He's bringing us into the courtroom and now he's acting as judge and he's looking at us and he is saying, you've got a case to plead. But the reality is, is your case is not very great. There's a lot of imperfection around you. There's a lot of imperfection in you that demands a death penalty because of sin. And so what it means to be justified is not declared innocent, but to be declared pardoned. You've done wrong, but I'm declaring you pardoned. That's what it means to be justified. Now, some of us have an issue with justification because we like to do things our own way. We don't like handouts. Every single one of us has been guilty of trying to pardon ourselves by using one of these four kind of big ideas that we think we can use to, staying with the courtroom theme, plead our own case. And the first one is that you've bought into the lie that a better version of you will earn God's justification. That a better version of you is all that you need in order to earn God's affection, in order to earn God's pleasure, in order to earn God's view of you as someone who can now be brought into the family. And so what that forces us to do is pretend that we're better than we actually are. And honestly, guys, like this is a weight that is way too heavy for us to try to do, to try to bear ourselves. Because what it tells us that we have to do is if we believe that a better version of us is going to be what works, then we're now forced to try to clean ourselves up all the time before we approach God. We have to make it look like we're innocent even though we're not. And we've bought into the lie that that will bang the gavel down and that God will justify us, that God will forgive us because we've bought into the lie that a better version of us, a wealthier version, a, a more mature version, a sexier version, whatever versions you think are going to actually be what you need for God to love you. And that's not true. The second one that we jump into is if you can't feel better about yourself, then you've got to find other people to feel better about you. And so it's the validation of others. So we've bought into the lie that if I don't, if I don't feel it myself, if I, if I don't think God loves me, if I don't think God is, is accepting me, then I got to find other people to accept me. So I'm going to surround myself with people who tell me that I'm awesome. 
I'm going to surround myself with people who make me feel good about myself because now that makes me feel like I'm accepted and therefore God will accept me. And let's be, let's be honest, is that not the anti-gospel? Let me pretend to others that I'm better than I actually am and hope that in some way that produces community? Like that robs community of its ability to be community, right? Everyone coming into the scene pretending that they're better than they are in order to then tell each other how awesome you are? Like if your community that you're involved in is only people telling you how you always nail it, then you're not in good community. We need one another to come in and say, hey, bro, you're off. You've messed up. We all need that. Because we're fighting the lie within ourselves that what we need is validation from others, not the rebuke of others. That we just need acceptance from others, but not love from others. Few things are as life-sucking and soul-crushing than needing others to validate you because you're forced to always put your best foot forward. The third one, if that one doesn't work, is then it's just the world. It's the world that constantly beckons to us what you need is more of what you already have. Go to any other country in the world, and I bet they don't have a thriving business in their economics that's around storage units. Think about it. Go to any other country in the world. I mean, it baffles us, that, I mean, and, and we use it halfway to a degree, but garages have turned into storage units. They're not even used for cars anymore. It's because we bought into the lie that what we need to satisfy us, what we need to, to find acceptance is just get more of what you already have. Because what you already have is not good enough. So you have a car, get a nicer one. You have a house, get a nicer one. You have a spouse, get a nicer one. Like, this is the lie that we buy into. That trinkets and toys are going to satisfy the soul and, and make us believe that we've arrived. Make us believe that because we've reached on the outside this level of we have all things together because we have a nice house and we have nice cars and we have a nice family and we have etc. We, we have this certain amount of money in our bank account. We have all these things. Other people are going to look at us and say, wow, they must be solid Christians because everything looks great for them. No, it's just we've sold out to the world. We've gained the world, but we forfeited our soul. The fourth one is religion itself. And honestly, it's just number one with a choir robe on it. Let me, let me try to make a better version of myself, but I'm going to do it based on good deeds and good actions and, and, and self-righteousness. I'm going to do it based on uh, being a good church member, but yet not engaging in an actual relationship with Jesus. This one we saw so, so many times in the South. This is probably the biggest one in the South. Like, it, honestly, the, the evangelism in the South for me growing up there, as well as being, being a pastor on staff there for over six years, wasn't so much, hey, you're addicted to drugs the satisfaction that you're looking for, you're not going to find it there. You're only going to find it in Christ. Rather, it was you're addicted to Sunday school. 
And because you're addicted to Sunday school, thinking that that's going to provide for you what you're actually longing for and looking for, you need to be redeemed out of that and into a relationship with Christ. Just because you've got all the badges and all the, you know, whatever, because you have so many scriptures memorized, like, like there's, there's hope that we put into doing church thinking that we understand and know the gospel and that we actually have a relationship with Jesus. It's just number one. Let me, let me better myself by looking like a Christian, but never actually having the source of what it means to be a Christian. The thing about God when it comes to this one is, I don't want to say he hates it more than, than just all out, what we see as sin as far as external deeds, um, but he does hate it. Isaiah 64, verse 6, he mentions that our self-righteous deeds are viewed as polluted garments. Polluted garments in Hebrew are the garments that they use for the menstruation cycle of women. God views self-righteous deeds as an act of finding satisfaction in them as disgusting. So we can't run this game of, let me find a church so that people, so that people think that I'm good. Let me find a church so that people, so, so that I think that I'm doing the right thing. I mean, that's, that's probably the, the conversations that I have so often, especially within the last six months, as I'm meeting people wherever I'm having lunch or just as I'm out and about. I remember meeting and talking with a, a guy over a lunch, and he said, um, he said, man, I, just, I really need to get back in church. My life is, my life is terrible. I, just, I need church. I need to go there. It's, just, it's the good thing to do. I said, man, it, if that's your motivation to come and check out the district church, then... I don't want you to come. If your motivation is that you think by just coming to church that it's going to clean up your life, I said, man, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I said, I've seen people who have all their lives put together who come to church as if it's going to sustain their life and keep it together and it fall apart. I said, so you trying to come to church in order to clean up yourself? I said, do you have any kids? He said, yeah, I have a five-year-old. I said, when your five-year-old tries to clean up himself, how does that work out? Like if he spills something on the couch or if he's eating chocolate and it smears it in the crater, like how does it go him trying to clean it up? He's like, it just gets worse. Exactly. Exactly. It does not work well for us trying to clean ourselves up. If we don't get justification, that God looks at us and is just saying, be honest. There is absolutely nothing you can do. Going with the courtroom theme, there's nothing you can do to come in here and plead your own case in order for me to justify you. We've got to start there. When God justified us, it was not because there was anything awesome in us. It was because he saw that there was nothing awesome in us. And the only thing he could put that was awesome in us is Christ himself. And so we have to start there. 
And here's the thing, if we don't get justification that God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has slammed the gavel down and declared our past sins, our present struggles, and our future sins forgiven, if we don't get that, then we will always run from God rather than to God. And if we don't run to him, we won't see him as the loving father that he really is. So here's where it kind of takes a a shift because in all honesty, Easter is all about the justification side. Easter's all about stop trying to do things your own way. Here's God's way. Here's what God is doing. Here's how God is forgiving you of sins. Here's, Here's how God is pardoning you of sins. Here's how you've been placing hope and satisfaction in what the world has to offer and what you think you have to offer. Here's how God is is actually accomplishing satisfaction and joy in you that you cannot find in the world. So Easter's all about calling and justification. Here's where it moves into the idea of what he does for us on a daily basis and what he moves into as his position in our relationship. says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this idea of glorified is a tough one because we usually think of it in only terms of Jesus being glorified, the state of his resurrected body. And I discussed that last week. But for believers, this glorification is a process that also includes our sanctification. It includes the journey between our justification and our glorification, which is our justification is declaring us pardoned our sanctification is now growing us in this new identity that we have. Like you realize when when you become a believer, in God's eyes, he has given you righteousness and he sees you as a righteous saint. He sees you as he sees his son Jesus. Yet the following day, are you completely acting like Jesus? No. Are you now living without sin? No. No. Of course we're still sinning. Of course we're still messing up. Of course there's going to be stumbles. So there's a process in which he justifies us in the courtroom. He declares us pardoned, but then he now moves into the talk about being a father. You see, the beauty of this courtroom is that it's not just declaring you to be pardoned, but this is also an adoption hearing that's happening. This is the judge slamming down the gavel and saying, we forgive you. But not only do I forgive you, you're coming home with me. You're coming into my family. And you're now having access to all that I have in order to transform you in order to clothe you, in order to feed you, in order to provide for you. This isn't us declared, being declared pardoned and then getting up from that bench and now figuring out how can I not mess up again. This is us now walking home with the judge, him putting his arm around us and saying, whatever I have, it's for you as well. Whatever I have, it's for you as well. Back up into verses 14 and 17 in Romans 8. Here's the language that he uses for it. For all who were led by God, verse 14, that is led by God through being called and justified. For all who were led by God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, which is what's produced from those four big ideas, fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. One of the things I think we struggle with is not so much that we're forgiven, but the fact that God actually delights in us, that he loves us, that he cares for us every single day. Like guys, I think because we're still so focused on trying to clean ourselves up that every time we mess up, it's as if we're pre-justified. It's as if we're going back into this idea of, oh my gosh, I messed up. God now, now hates me all of a sudden. He now dislikes me. Like a lot of times I, I view it and I view it wrongly as though, yes, God justified me, but now is just kind of putting up with me until glory. That he's justified me. And then at times, like as I'm in his family, he's kind of like, I adopted him. But man, is there a return policy on this? Like, because this is just way too much for me to handle. No, like that's not the way God views us. That's not the way he looks at us. That's not the way he delights in us. He lavishes love on us. He forgave and declared pardoned our past, our present, and our future. God in that courtroom already knows all the junk that we're going to do in the future and says, yep, it's gone. I remember it no more. And then brings us into the family and says, let's go. Let's go. We got some work to do, but we're going to get there. Honestly, for me, it, I never really viewed or understood that in a way until having my own son. And I, always, I was always kind of frustrated whenever preachers would always talk about their kids, but I get it now. We've got a 20-month-old at home who I go out in the backyard and we've got like footballs and basketballs and kickballs all around in the backyard and, and I've kind of got this little game that I do in order to play with him. It's more me just playing, but like it, it, he's kind of there. But like I'm going around, I'm picking up footballs and I'm like throwing, trying to hit the kickball and the other balls and like it's just this little game that I play. But the beauty of it is, is Ezra's following around with me and he picks up a ball and he's trying to throw it as well. And of course it goes about two feet and in comparison to what I'm doing versus what he's doing, he looks pathetic. I mean, kid can't throw a ball. There's no spiral to it. He's not using the laces. Like, come on, kid. But what do I do whenever he throws a ball? <laughs> Buddy, that was awesome. That was awesome. Let's go get it. We don't have to go far. Let's go get it. Let's, let's pick the ball up. Let's throw it again. It looks messy, it looks grimy, it doesn't look perfect, but I'm celebrating, I'm delighting over him, his growing ability and being able to do something. That's exactly what God's doing with us every single day. That's exactly what our sanctification looks like. He's brought us into the family, he's adopted us into the family in order for us to walk in the way of Christ, to become like Christ, to be transformed into the image of Christ. And it's not going to be pretty when we first start out. It's not going to be pretty 10 years from now. It's progress, but not perfection. And he delights in us in the entire process. When Ezra was first starting to walk, it was messy. He would take a couple of steps and fall down. And I'm not looking at him when he falls down and saying, you must have got that from your mother. Like, I'm not doing that. 
he walks, he takes a couple steps. I'm picking him back up. We're celebrating the fact that he took a couple of steps. Yeah, he fell, but we're celebrating. That's what God's doing with us every single day. Every single day. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next as he is glorifying us, as he is sanctifying us, as he's transforming and molding and shaping us. He's saying, I've already forgiven your sins that you're going to commit every single day. And because I've forgiven them, I'm going, to be, I'm going to continue etching them off so that we sin less and worship more every single day. Doesn't give us a license to sin. If we view it as though it's a license to sin, we're not understanding sanctification. A license to sin is only going to get us to run from the Father, not run to the Father. We run to the Father when we mess up because we know that He's already declared us righteous. He goes on to say in verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now this gets into inheritance here the resurrection of jesus purchases for us an inheritance there are three things that can be referenced here when talking about inheritance and i'm going to work um, the way up to the main one but the first one is we know from the bible is that there will be a day in which we will all rule and reign with jesus in a new heaven and a new earth that's a part of our inheritance like this isn't us getting to heaven and, and there's just sort of this like like i have a seat and that seat's got my name on it. And I'm going to sit in that seat for all eternity and just stand and sing and, and sit and stand and sing and sit and sit. Like, like, that's not what heaven is. That's what people told me it was when I was little. And I thought, I don't want to go to that place. That sounds horrific. Like, I get the, I, like God is glorified and we're going to sit and worship him. But there's a way in which we worship God that's not just standing and singing as if we're dumb. But there's life involved in this there's ruling and reigning over the new heavens and the new earth along with jesus that is a part of our inheritance like it's not just standing and singing because the reason why i know that is there's also a feast that happens when we get up there if you like food you're going to enjoy heaven because there's a feast we're going to part we're going to be eating a lot of great food because god is the chef that's amazing and we're going to eat it without the, the, the guilt of gluttony. We're going to eat it without the guilt of, oh, I should have stopped a couple of bites ago, but you know what? There is that chocolate cake. I still need it too. No, like we get to enjoy and partake and in all those things say God is good and that's worshiping. That's praising him. So there will be a time in which we will rule and reign with Jesus in a new heaven and new earth. And what I did talk about last week a little bit is the fact that we're also going to be getting new glorified bodies. Like you realize you can't worship God in glory with this hoopty body that you have. We get a new body. And that's awesome. I've always wanted to be a little taller than I am. So I'm hoping that happens. But I really don't care. I get a new glorified body, an imperishable body, an immortal body, that, like I said last week, as Jesus was able to enter into rooms that had locked doors without using a door, it might be an opportunity to teleport. Regardless, it's going to be awesome, and that's part of our inheritance. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm looking forward to it. That's the second part. The third part and the best part of our inheritance is that we get God. We get God. 
If you got the new heavens and the new earth and you got this new glorified body, but you didn't get God, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. That's what Satan tempted Jesus with. That's what we're tempted with every single day. Here's the world. Here's a better body. That's what you need. No, that's not what we need. We need God. We get God. That's our inheritance. We get him. That's the good news of the gospel. We get God. The last thing he says, and if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, comma, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the tough one. Anybody wish that wasn't in there? <laughs> Anybody wish it was just heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, period? Not comma, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him? That means this is going to be a roller coaster of a ride. This sanctification, this process of being glorified is not going to be everything's good, but it's going to be all things are working out for your good. Ed Welch said one time, I think we are confused that sanctification looks a lot like strength when it actually looks a lot like weakness. Sanctification looks a lot like God I can't figure this out. God, I have no idea what's going on here. God, I need you. God, like, this is the five-year-old who's constantly saying, why, 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 why? This is us coming to God as five-year-olds in our Christian faith saying, God, what is going on? God, I need your truth. God, I need, I need assurance. God, I need love. God, I need your strength. God, I need you wrapping your arms around me because I'm suffering here, because I'm going through pain, because I'm experiencing turmoil, because I don't feel like you're near when I know you're near in my head, but I'm not feeling it in my heart. God, where are you? What are you doing? God, I need you and what we know in the gospel is that when jesus rose from the grave and spent 40 days with the disciples it was not 40 days and i'm gone it was 40 days and the last thing he said was and lo i will be with you always i will be with you always and that's the main thing that we're going to be talking about in the idea of abiding in John 15 is that he is with us always. Even though he's not physically here with me, he's physically here with me because you're here with me. God in you is the physical presence of, of, of Jesus coming alongside of me and saying, let's go. Let's go for a walk. Let's talk. Let's be in community. Let's, like, you, like Christ in you coming to me alongside of me and saying, hey, brother, there's some things that, that I love about you. There's some things that, that, that you do that are awesome as you're growing in Christ, but there's also some areas that, that aren't so awesome that I think you're trusting in your flesh a little bit. I think you need to work out a little bit. That's Christ's presence rebuking us. I mean, how many times did he rebuke disciples? Quite often. I mean, Peter called him Satan one time. Now, I'm not going to pull you aside and call you Satan. <laughs> but there might be times where I pull you aside and be like, you're acting kind of like Satan. Because we need that from one another. But here's the main thing of this idea of 
suffering. Don't despise the dark days. Don't despise the dark days. God's using them. God's in them. God's working them out. Paul would plead for the dark days to leave. He had a thorn in his flesh. We don't exactly know what the actual thorn in his flesh was. But the reality is he had something that was not pleasant and he prayed three times for God to remove it and God said, no, I'm not removing this messenger of Satan. I'm not removing it because it'll show you an intimacy with Christ that you would not be able to experience if it wasn't there. And Paul then changes his perspective around the thorn in his flesh. He says, oh, well, if suffering provides more intimacy with Christ, then Paul's now saying, bring on the suffering. All the more. It's almost like he's now praying for suffering if I get to experience a greater intimacy with Christ. The implications of the gospel in our lives are a growing awareness of who Christ is, which allows us to grow in who we're becoming. And in growing in who we're becoming, we're able to now clearly see what we're ultimately receiving in our inheritance. I want to close with this story of a guy named John Newton. He shared this illustration about 100 years ago. And so I'm going to kind of change some of the, the illustration that he uses because he uses a, a horse and carriage, and so I'm going to use a car. But um, suppose your grandfather, and y'all know I love the Cowboys, and so I'm going to go with this, but suppose your grandfather's Jerry Jones, owner of the cow- Cowboys, oil tycoon, multi-billionaire. He's your grandfather. You get word that he's dying, and he's leaving the estate to you. Multi-billion dollar estate, Leaving the cowboys to you. I'm all about that. And you are now, you're currently driving this beat up, rusted Honda Civic. And let's say you're down in like South Texas and you got to drive up to Dallas, Texas in order to receive this estate. And as you're driving there, you're getting there and you can kind of come over um, I was going to say hill, but there's really not any in Texas. You're coming around some buildings, and you see that Cowboy Stadium in the distance. And you're getting closer, and you're getting closer in this beat-up Honda Civic that's rusted out. And about a mile away, your car breaks down. And you're now forced to walk the rest of the way to the stadium to receive your inheritance. And what John Newton says would be foolish of us to think that that guy getting out of the car and walking to receive his inheritance would be complaining, oh, my car, my car, what am I going to do, my car? When you've got God in front of you that you have all access to receiving. And what he's saying there is in the process of sanctification, we should not be navel gazers walking around saying, woe is me, look how I've messed up, look how, I've, look how I'm complaining about my circumstances, I don't have enough this, I don't have enough that. And all the while, we're adopted into the family of a father 
who not only has created everything, but owns everything and sustains everything and is working out all things for our good and our pleasure and our joy and our satisfaction. So why should we be walking around saying, woe is me? Guys, our sanctification is, yes, a process with horrific circumstances that are around us, but amidst the circumstances, we have God. And we place our trust there. We place our rest there. We place our hope there. So that regardless of what comes our way, whether it's our own inadequacies that we're fearful of, whether it's the validation from others that we're longing for, whether it's the world that we feel like, I don't have enough money for this, I need this and this and this, or it's even just church, I'm, I'm not the best church member. Regardless of those things, we're sitting on the lap of God as our Father who loves and delights in us and is saying, I'm transforming you, I'm transforming you, you're getting better, you're getting better, you're more like me, you're more like me. This is awesome. This is awesome. We're going to sit in that for the next several months. We're going to look at those implications of what it means to walk with God as a child of His that's transforming us. Not us as a child trying to figure it out on our own, but as us tapping into, connecting into, dialing into what the Father's doing and what He's willing and what he's accomplishing through Christ and with the Holy Spirit's applying to our lives every single day. We're going to walk in that. We're going to rejoice in that. We're going to celebrate what he's doing. That's molding and shaping us. The band's going to come down. As the band's coming down, I'm going to pray. And we're just going to take a time right now. We're just going to reflect. It's going to take a time. And, and, and honestly, guys, I, I think the easiest thing to do in this time is just to say, you know what, God? You're right. You've got this whole thing worked out. Not only have you worked it out, but you are working things out for my good. And I trust that. So therefore, I don't have to work things out. I don't have to figure things out. I'm actually just going to come and kind of Reflect on that and, and confess the areas where I think I'm trying to do it and I'm not doing it all that well. And so, God, I'm sorry for trying to take the reins of what you're doing in my sanctification. God, let me trust you. Let me rest in you. Let me serve you. Let me long for you. Give me the hunger and thirst for you. God, produce that within me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. God, we thank you that, um, that we're not in this alone. We thank you that this is not a, a works-based relationship in which we have to earn. We don't have to earn what's freely given. God, you freely give it to us because of the price that your son paid. And so God, give us the awareness in the weeks to come. Give us your strength in the weeks to come. Give us your truth. Let us see it. Let us treasure it. And let us be transformed by it. God, we, our, our goal in making disciples to glorify you 
is to become like your son Jesus. That's it. Because we know being like Jesus is what honors and worships you. We know being like Jesus is what advances the gospel because we'll naturally be sharing it with those around us because we'll see that they're in need as well. And so, Father, guide us, direct us, just as you called us out of sin, continue to walk with us out of sin. We love you, Lord. We honor you. We praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at